0: and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping today on Thursday, October 22nd at 10.30 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined by a video conference by Margot Sanger Katz of the New York Times. Good morning. Alice Olstein of Politico. Hello. And Paige Winfield Cunningham of the Washington Post.
1: Happy Thursday and final debate day.
0: <laughs> yeah. So no interviews this week, but we have more than enough news to make up for it. Um, I want to start with some good news, or at least uh, that as close as we can get to good news uh, about COVID nineteen. Uh, we will get to the bad news soon, but there are a few glimmers of light to be had this week. First, unlike colleges around the country where it has been um, difficult to keep students from congregating in unsafe ways, it appears there have been relatively few positive COVID tests in New York City public schools that have been holding in-person learning for the past several weeks. And that includes some of the Brooklyn and Queens neighborhoods where there have been new outbreaks. Is it just possible, maybe, that it's safer than we thought to send younger kids who have a much more difficult time with online learning back to in-person school? Or are cases rising too fast in too many parts of the country? We're seeing Boston now reclose schools that have been open. Um, where, where are we with schools for little kids? Paige, Paige you have little kids.
1: <laughs> I have many thoughts about this. I have to say, I was actually pretty skeptical. I was probably one of the more skeptical reporters back in over the summer and early fall. Um, of uh, just kind of the data and what we knew of how students spread this. And it's interesting. We really have seen very little transmission so far in schools. I remember writing about schools uh, in in Great Britain. Actually, there was a report that came out at the end of August, and they had found very, very little transmission of the virus. I think they had looked at a lot of their schools, and transmission was 0.02 percent or something among teachers and, and even less among students. And, you know, I remember wondering whether that would bear out here. And to be fair, we only have a few weeks of or months of data. But so far, I think fewer than one percent of schools that have been studied or looked at have really seen transmission of the virus. Um, And so, you know, it's funny. i just, you know, we read our, our, we live in Alexandria and every week our like little local paper does a poll of parents and their thoughts about whether kids should be sent back because of course Alexandria and the other schools in Northern Virginia are doing all virtual and you've seen a real shift in opinion among parents. I think in in August, it was like one third of parents, you know, parents were really split. Um, And now they, I was looking at the poll this last week and almost 70 percent of parents want their kids to go back to school and are at least their younger children and are feeling better about what we've seen about transmission of the virus and are just feeling a little bit Less fearful. So this has been a really interesting area where it's been really polarized as a lot of the debate has been between lockdown versus not lockdown sort of talked about in these black and white terms. But I think people are starting to kind of rethink whether the correct decisions based on the science were, were made and how, you know, our findings now might affect what school looks like now for the rest of the fall semester and then
0: into uh, the next semester. Yeah, maybe close the colleges, open the elementary schools, rather than close the bars, open the schools.
2: A lot of large urban school districts, even in places that have relatively low levels of transmission, are remaining closed. I think, you know, as Paige says, this has become very politicized in a couple of ways. I think one... The president's remarks over the summer sort of demanding that schools reopen, interestingly, I think, made left-leaning people very wary of school reopening, whereas I think otherwise that might have been a population that would have been more open to considering this kind of scientific evidence that it looks relatively safe for at least elementary school students to return to school. I also think in a lot of school districts, there is politics related to teachers' unions. The teachers' unions in a lot of these cities have taken a very hard line um, in San Francisco and Washington, D.C., and New Haven, Connecticut, and Baltimore, a lot of bigger cities that have had the experience of COVID, uh, the unions are very against opening. They're very concerned about the safety of their workers. And in some cases, they are making demands that seem rather extreme. Uh, in some of these districts, the teachers' unions are saying that they don't want to go back to school until there is zero community transmission of COVID for 14 days in their city, which I think. Is probably not a realistic goal for probably any time in the next five years. There's always going to probably be, even after a vaccine, some COVID and some community transmission of COVID because it's going to be difficult to get sort of perfect herd immunity to this disease. So I think this is going to be an ongoing debate in a lot of places, you know, both over the science about the safety, but then also about the politics of actually getting the schools reopened and getting teachers to be willing to teach in those schools.
0: All right, well, let's move on to the next slight bright spot, which is California. While cases are going up just about everywhere, the trend seems to be a lot slower, at least for now, in the Golden State. Cases are down, hospitalizations are down, test positivity is down. Um, Ashish Jha, dean of the Brown University School of Public Health, who we interviewed on last week's podcast, in case you missed it, says it's a combination of things, including more testing, a more refined approach to closing and reopening the economy, uh, particularly at the county level. Does California maybe have a formula for how we could better do this rather than this? We were just talking about with the schools, you know, the blanket, everything open or everything closed, maybe sort of get a little more nuance into the what's open and what's closed? Or are we just too politicized for that?
3: I I I think it's important to, yes, to complicate the debate a little bit. And, you know, I've heard a lot of the analogy that it's not a light switch where it's on and off. It's a dimmer switch where, you know, you can dial it back or ramp it up depending on the conditions on the ground. And so I think, you know, In our political discourse, you have President Trump saying, oh, if Biden is elected, he'll shut everything down and then calling for everything to be opened again. But I think that the experience of California and some other states show that these targeted closures and restrictions can really have a big impact on making things safer on a public health level while minimizing economic pain. And so I think given how long this will go on, even if and when we have a vaccine, we will still need a lot of other precautions because not everyone will get the vaccine right away. We don't know how effective it will be, et cetera. I think that thinking about these more targeted measures in terms of sustainability, since we will have to sustain some sort of precaution for a very long time and people can't be out of work or you know economically devastated in their communities for that long to
1: have more of this California-esque model. Well, and California has... Um... You know, I just remember being really surprised over the summer because for a while there, California, of course, it had been among the most aggressive of states of locking down early. And then you saw cases rise. And it was actually one of the states with the highest amounts of transmission of the virus for some point during the summer. I remember looking at that and being like, wow, this is really telling as to how pernicious this virus is and difficult to contain. So it seems like the state has really been and the state leadership has really been kind of at the forefront of figuring out what is this sustainable model, some things could be easier too for for California over the winter months, just given that the climate is a little bit warmer. And so eating establishments might 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 be able to operate in ways that they like they couldn't in the northeast. Um, but it's, it's been really interesting to see how California has been kind of grappling with this.
0: Yeah, I feel like it's sort of California and Europe are the ones who, you know, who seem to sort of get things under control. And now in, you know, in Europe, we're seeing things sort of spiraling out of control again. All right. Well, let, let us move on to the final bit of good news here. Uh, apparently, while the pandemic is steaming right along, the death rate for COVID is going down, at least according to a pair of peer reviewed studies. And it's not just that the people getting COVID now are younger and healthier than those affected at the start of the pandemic, although the majority of people getting COVID right now are younger and healthier than people at the start of the pandemic nor is it that there's some magic new treatment it seems to be more that doctors and nurses have become better at spotting who's going to become the sickest and doing things that keep those people from dying uh some theorize that mask wearing may be keeping initial doses of the virus lower so people don't get as sick um But I worry that if people think the virus is less dangerous, they'll be less willing to take the steps needed to prevent it. I mean, you know, we keep talking about the politicization, but some of it is just sort of the public and it's and, you know, the the pandemic fatigue.
2: Well, if you guys remember sort of early in the pandemic when we first started taking all of these lifestyle measures, social distancing, working from home, you know, even before mask wearing was widespread, the kind of jargon at that time was the reason why we're doing this is to bend the curve. The idea is that, you know, this disease is probably going to continue to spread. People are going to continue to get sick for a long time. But if everyone gets sick at once, it's going to overwhelm the healthcare system. It's going to really make the disease much more devastating. And I think. Some of what we're seeing is improvements in medical care and the changing demographics of who's getting sick, as you say. But I think some of it is that we actually have bent the curve relatively successfully. If you think about what was happening in some of the European countries in Italy, that was hit early on, and also in New York City, some of the early sites where there were just huge, huge numbers of cases and people just completely overrunning hospitals. That was a time when the fatality rate was super high from this disease because there just weren't enough medical resources to go around. I think part of what we're trying to do uh, by changing our lives in the way that we have and taking on some of these economic harms as a result is we're trying to reduce the total number of cases and the total number of deaths. But part of what we're doing also is we're trying to spread them out over time so that when people do get sick, there are medical professionals and facilities that are available to give them the -the state-of-the-art care. So it's clear that medical professionals have gotten better at treating this disease, but I also think that that because they are not so completely overwhelmed, they're able to give the best care to more patients. Which
0: which kind of feeds right into our uh, first bad news about the pandemic: um, herd immunity. Uh, a nurse friend of mine asked me last week about the Great Barrington Declaration, which I had not heard of at the time. But it's a document signed by thousands of health professionals calling for reopening the economy uh, and letting the virus spread among low-risk populations, at, so as to achieve herd immunity, while trying to protect those at high risk such as seniors and other people with comorbidities. Most public health experts scoff at that idea, pointing out that even low-risk people have gotten very sick and died, and it's not really practical to think you can keep people separated. Uh, An article uh, published this week by the Journal of the American Medical Association says, quote, so far there is still no example of a large-scale successful intentional infection-based herd immunity strategy. Still, while he's not a signatory, Trump's most influential pandemic advisor of the moment, Scott Atlas, who's a neuroradiologist with no background in public health, has also endorsed the idea of herd immunity. If Trump is reelected, is this going to be the national policy? It seems to be what the president is pushing. Well, it's funny, Julie, you mentioned
1: um your nurse friend asked you about this. I have a neighbor who I sort of rely on her to give me a read on what the sort of vaccine skeptical the kind of person who's who tends to be skeptical of federal health agencies and such. And she asked me about the Barrington Declaration as well. And, you know, it's an interesting conversation because, as we've already said, like, this whole this whole issue is one that is more complicated and nuanced than the black than the black and white conversation, and, and virtually every you know scientist acknowledges the the terrible tolls. Um, of of the lockdowns and the terrible downstream effects. But when I talk to my neighbor about this and she kind of questions the lockdowns, I feel like the thing I always go back to is, is the death toll. You know, if you just do a little bit of back of the envelope math, you think about opening up the country and trying to get us to herd immunity. Well, that would take roughly 200 million Americans being immune to the virus. So far, probably fewer than 10 percent are. So we're talking about infecting another 160 million people or so. And if you're looking at the death rate, assume a death rate of 0.5 percent, like you're still looking at 1.3 million deaths. Now, you could argue that like that might be lower because like we like we said, treatment's getting better, like the death rate is going down. The virus probably already burned through a lot of the people most vulnerable to it. But even
0: so like or it might be higher because, as Margot just pointed out, you would overwhelm the health system.
1: Well, and you have the issue of excess deaths, too, which I, I think we'll talk about um, next. <laughs> right. OK, maybe it's higher, maybe it's lower. Either way, like that's a lot of people. And the fact that we have two hundred and twenty two thousand deaths even amid these really crazy lockdowns for months on end that have destroyed the economy, I think is really telling. So I think it's an interesting conversation. I like seeing when the scientific community can engage in a nuanced conversation without kind of this polarizing way that like the president talks about it. So I think I do think it's really important to talk about the toll of the lockdowns. When you think about what the practical effects would be of kind of what the Barrington Declaration is calling for, it just seems like the death toll would just be too high to pursue a strategy like this.
0: Well, well, let's actually bring the whole excess deaths thing into it, um, which is that the CDC reported this week that there were just shy of 300,000 excess deaths from February 1st to October 3rd, which, Alice, go ahead and say what you're going to say. And then, Margot, I'm going to ask you to explain excess deaths, because I know you've written about this.
3: You asked if this is where we would be headed under a potential second Trump term. And I think we're sort of seeing that happen already by default, even though they insist they are not pursuing a herd immunity strategy that's essentially what they're doing by default because they're not investing in more testing. Trump is going out on the campaign trail and saying, you know, we need to get back to normal life. Um, the virus isn't that bad. Look, I'm all better. You know, he's hosting these crowded rallies where people don't wear masks. He's sort of modeling this behavior of let's go back to normal life until there's a vaccine and hyping a vaccine and saying it's just around the corner when we don't necessarily know that. And so I think that it's sort of a words versus actions dichotomy here, where they're saying, you know, they're insisting, they're telling reporters, no, we are not in favor of a herd immunity strategy, but in practice, that's sort of the direction we're moving in. Right, so, so Margo, what what
0: are excess deaths? <laughs> Why is this important?
2: Yeah, so this is a term that epidemiologists use and it's used a lot in settings where there isn't a very well developed medical system or in places where there are natural disasters and there may be um, lots of deaths that are hard to measure. So if you think about it, like in a typical year, a certain number of Americans are going to die. And there's some variation year to year. There are demographic changes. So as the population ages, we tend to have slightly more deaths each year. And then there's some variability, like there are bad flu seasons and good flu seasons. So you might see some differences between one year and another year. But in general, if you kind of look over the course of, say, five years back and you adjust for some of these things, you can come up with a baseline that you can call sort of expected deaths. We expect this many Americans are going to die every month of the year. And then you can compare the actual experience um, under the virus to what those expected deaths would be. And what we see, uh, my colleagues and I have been tracking this, updating it almost every week for several months. What you can see is that in every state of the country except Alaska and Hawaii, the number of deaths are far above normal. The national average deaths are 20% higher than normal. And obviously, some states that have been very hard hit by COVID, um, the gap is even larger. And those are deaths, again, Like these are not deaths where they're confirmed to be COVID deaths. This is not have anything to do with what kind of diagnoses people have. This is just simple subtraction. How many people did you think were going to die? How many people actually died? And an advantage of that approach, I think, is that it doesn't depend on our ability to test people accurately, to diagnose them correctly, to sort of tease out all of the various factors that might have caused them to die, and I think it also gives us a picture of the overall toll of the pandemic. So probably almost all of these deaths come from COVID itself, and I can talk more about that in a second. But we know that there are lots of other changes that are happening as a result of the pandemic. You know, For example, people are staying home where they're not driving as much, so perhaps we have fewer deaths from driving. Uh, it seems like the flu season is very mild this year. Maybe we're having fewer deaths from flu, but then there are lots of way of causes of death that are increasing as a result of what's happening. People have been frightened, particularly in hard hit places of calling ambulances, of going to the hospital, even when they have very serious health problems. So it's possible people with heart attacks, strokes, and other kinds of life-threatening emergencies are just dying at home or getting to the hospital much sicker and dying more quickly than they would in a normal time. These, this kind of lumps it all together. It's just giving you one number. But what we see over time is that the places where the excess deaths go up are the places where COVID is bad. So if you look at the trends kind of week by week, it doesn't look like the lockdowns alone are causing the deaths. In the places that had lockdowns and not very much COVID, they don't have very many excess deaths. In the places that had no lockdowns and had a lot of COVID, you see a lot of excess deaths and in the places that have both, you see a lot. So what the, what the evidence is showing us is that COVID is causing extremely unusual patterns of death all around the country. Lots of people are dying from this disease who would have survived in a normal
1: year. The thing that surprised me, and your reporting has been really fascinating on this, Margot, the CDC found uh, a really high excess death rate among 25 to 44-year-olds. Their excess death rate is up 26.5% over previous years. That was fascinating to me because it's a group that we think of as one that's less vulnerable To serious complications. I would be curious to find out more about why that is, whether how much of that is due to COVID, I guess, and how much of that is is due to like people not seeking medical care, or maybe you have insights into that, Margot. Well, one
2: thing I wanted to add, and, and these data are very preliminary, and so we don't know for sure, but it looks like 2020 has been an extremely bad year for drug overdose deaths also. Um, And those deaths are looking really high. Uh, The the months that we have the most data for are actually before the pandemic got really bad. But in February and March, there were record deaths in a number of states from drug overdoses. And so I think we don't have enough information to know for sure, like all the causes of death. But a theory that I have is that some of these deaths among young people may have to do with fentanyl overdoses as
1: well as COVID. And
0: and that's sort of the, the the prime age range for for opioid addiction, um, I think. Right, well,
1: we were already having trouble getting a handle on this before the pandemic started. And
0: it it seems...
1: It seems clear it has worsened. How much we're not sure, but but
0: definitely has moved in the wrong direction. We will definitely talk more about this next week and the, the big Purdue settlement. There is a little bit of non-COVID news this week. The Trump administration late last week announced that it plans to appeal to the Supreme Court uh, a lower court ruling saying that no, the administration cannot allow states to impose work requirements for the Medicaid program. And for good measure, the administration also approved a new work requirement in the middle of a pandemic when it's hard to find jobs. Uh, For Georgia, Georgia is also being allowed to do something we've talked about before, partial Medicaid expansion, uh, which will also be challenged in court, I am confident. Uh, It's been a while since we've talked about it. Alice, remind us about the Medicaid work requirements litigation. What's at stake here?
3: So a bunch of states have, have moved under the Trump administration to impose work requirements on their Medicaid programs, some for Medicaid expansion population, some for the traditional Medicaid population, and not not only is, is this a pandemic when jobs are scarce, but also the only state to actually impose the work requirements and enforce them, which was Arkansas, saw a lot of people lose their benefits. Um, the process was very hard to navigate, so it wasn't just that people weren't willing to work, it was the challenge of navigating this process for low-income people, um, which is obviously even harder right now.
0: At you, yeah, you actually you had to get online and report your hours and even people- people who were working um, were really were frequently unable to 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 report it to the state satisfaction.
3: Right. And because it's a sort of strict monthly work requirement, people who have seasonal jobs in agriculture or hospitality would also be at risk of losing their Medicaid eligibility. And so courts have blocked these policies. And so the Trump administration has been appealing it up and up. And now it's going to the Supreme Court. And this is going to be an ongoing. There are arguments about whether this is actually sort of a demonstration or trial of uh, an idea and a policy, whether the work requirements incentivize people to get jobs that would eventually get them off Medicaid into private coverage. There are a lot of jobs right now do not have that kind of benefit. So yeah, this has been this ongoing fight.
0: And now we add Georgia to the pile. Yeah. And Georgia, I mean, it's is also doing in addition to having a work requirement, um, Georgia is doing something called partial expansion, which we have also talked about which there's a lot of doubt is going to be allowed um, eventually by the courts, where rather under the Affordable Care Act, you could either you could go all the way you had to go all the way up to 138 percent of poverty if you wanted to add, though, that expansion population, the people who didn't otherwise meet Medicaid requirements of being having children or being having a disability or being elderly, the people, basically, the quote-unquote able-bodied low-income population. Um, and what Georgia's going to do is expand it only up to 100% of poverty, except they're only going to get their regular state match, which I think is 67%, as opposed to the 90% that, that states get for expanding all the way up. A number of states have wanted, to do this. And there are a lot of sort of flashing warning signs from Medicaid advocates about this, right?
2: I think there's always been a lot of concern among advocates for the Medicaid population about these work requirements because of the many reasons that Alice mentioned, that they're complicated to navigate, that people with low incomes have unstable work hours and less access to technology. But I think that there is a particular concern right now with the pandemic when you know I think it's one thing to talk about a work requirement when we're in a full employment economy as we have been in the last few years where there are lots of job opportunities and Uh, You know, policymakers may want to give people a little push to work if they uh, haven't been trying as hard as they could be to get a job when there are a lot of jobs. But I think right now there aren't a lot of jobs. There are a lot of Americans who are out of work and there is, you know, this serious illness that is spreading around the country. So I think that the people who have always been concerned about these work requirements are sort of extra concerned about them right now because they feel that People are not going to be able to comply. And what it means is that a lot of low income, vulnerable people who are going to not just lose their jobs and lose their income, but also lose their access to health insurance.
1: Not to always bring everything back to the pandemic, but but to bring everything back to the pandemic. Um so Margot's point, we're really seeing Medicaid function as that safety net during the pandemic. I think um, CMS recently reported enrollment in the program grew 6.2 percent over the spring and summer months. And we've seen enrollment go up in the double digits in like at least three states. Um, so, you know, people are relying on this as they either either lose their, you know, employment sponsored coverage or become ineligible for subsidies in the marketplaces.
3: And we should mention that even before the pandemic, the vast majority of people on Medicaid who were able to work were working already. And the people who were not working, the overwhelming majority either, they had a disability or they were taking care of a family member or they were just unable to find work. And so the the idea that there's this huge group of people out there who are choosing not to work and choosing to be on the Medicaid rolls is uh, a bit of a myth.
0: You can't live off your Medicaid benefits. <laughs> there, there's no cash to you involved. I think that's-, but I, that's
2: I think the- what this Georgia action shows us is that this is a big priority, a big policy priority for this administration and for the CMS administrator, Seema Verma. I think this is sort of her baby, the main policy that she- has really uh, tried to push through the Medicaid program. And I think that's why you see them approving more of these waivers, even during the pandemic, where you might think that the politics of doing so would be bad and the timing isn't very good. But I think that you know they're continuing to litigate these cases in court, going to the Supreme Court now. And I think they're continuing to try to approve the ones that are in the pipeline in case there is not a second Trump term and there is not an opportunity to do so later.
3: And it's interesting in terms of the ideology that Georgia would rather cover fewer people and get less federal money out of ideologically wanting a more conservative program than than the one laid out under the Affordable Care Act. And so I, I anticipate that folks will criticize the state for turning down lots more federal money that could support rural hospitals, et cetera.
0: Of course, we've seen that in all the states that haven't expanded. They've been offered all this federal money, and they're still not taking. All right, one more, because I can't resist, because we have Margo and Alice both here. Uh, While we're talking about the Supreme Court, and while we're we're taping this, the Senate is starting to move forward on the nomination of Judge Amy Coney Barrett to become the sixth conservative on the Supreme Court. Margo, you were part of a really cool project this week on what would happen if the court actually overturned Roe v. Wade, which, assuming Barrett gets confirmed, is a definitely a live possibility. What's the the bottom line of your your infographic?
2: Yeah, so the bottom line is that there's really good research uh, particularly in Texas but now also in Wisconsin about what happens when abortion clinics close. So the short version is when an abortion clinic closes, women who want to get abortions have to travel further to get to the nearest clinic. And the further the nearest clinic is, the fewer of them make it for various reasons. We know that most women who seek abortions are poor. They may have unstable child care for their existing children. They may have limited transportation options. So the effect, what we saw in Texas when Texas closed a bunch of clinics because of a state law, was that the number of overall abortions in clinics went down as a result of these clinic closures. So what we were able to do with the help of a bunch of researchers who have looked at this really closely is kind of create some scenarios based on existing law about which states would be likely to ban or restrict abortion access uh, in a post row world. And then we knew where all of the clinics were. So we were able to show where they would go away. And then you could calculate the driving distances all around the country. And the findings that I found really interesting is that, you know, it turns out that it's not just that there are many states that would seek to make abortion illegal, but that they're located near to one another. So in a lot of parts of the country now, you know, there's maybe only one clinic in a state or, you know, There are a lot of women who are far away from a clinic in their state, but they can kind of hop over the state border and get to a clinic in a neighboring state. What you see in our map is kind of this big slash through the middle of the country, throughout the um, South and parts of the Midwest, where there just is nowhere for women to go. If you live in one of these states, there will not be a neighboring state where abortion is legal. And so it means that the number of abortions is likely to go down by a lot. Another thing that I think is really important to remember is that if Roe v. Wade goes away, it does not mean that abortion will be illegal everywhere. It just means that states will have to decide how they want to regulate abortion in a more expansive way. And there are lots of parts of the country where state politicians have no interest in restricting abortion at all. So there are lots of places in the country where uh, the number of abortions is not likely to be affected at all. And then there are also some places where There's already uh, such an anti-abortion sentiment among legislators and other people in the states that there's effectively no abortion access already, and it actually wouldn't get any worse. So Missouri, the parts of Missouri, I think, are a good example of this, where even if Roe went away, the numbers of abortions actually don't go down in our model because the women are already so far away from a clinic.
0: We will certainly talk more about this uh, in the in the coming weeks. Um, okay, that's the news that we have time for. Now it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read, too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash health. Alice, why don't you go first this week? Sure. So
3: I chose ProPublica's Inside the Fall of the CDC. We, it's a four-byline uh, opus. <laughs> Um, by James Bandler, Patricia Callahan, Sebastian Rotella, and Kristen Berg. And it just pulls together a lot of individual moments throughout the pandemic that we've seen reported, but compiled all together, it paints a really difficult picture of an agency that has essentially trashed decades of public trust and global reputation in um, bowing to a lot of political influence uh, from the Trump White House over the course of the pandemic. In the piece, they detail how certain experts were, you know, silenced and sidelined after speaking out about the severity of the pandemic early on. The White House forced the CDC to water down its guidance on everything from cruise ships, to churches, and is just raising a lot of fears that the credibility and trust that this agency built over more than 50 years, now how long will it take for it to regain that? And what happens when the agency doesn't have that? What happens when the vaccine is available and the agency is trying to tell people how to take it, how to think about it, and the public doesn't trust them because they've had this political interference and pressure over the past year? So, uh, I really recommend this piece. There's just a lot of crazy little nuggets in there about (laughs) top scientists making up Broadway show tunes about virus outbreaks. That was, that was a moment I would love to know a lot more about that was referenced in the piece. Uh, if if you work at CDC, uh, and you know about this, please leak to me. I want to know what it is.
0: (laughs) Okay, Paige.
1: Yeah. So my story is a great, a great one published by the Wall Street Journal and, Uh, They obtained leaked emails, which kind of shed light on how uh, some big hospital systems in Southern California um, refused or delayed accepting COVID-19 patients because these patients were either uninsured or on Medicaid, which, of course, pays these hospitals much less than if someone has private coverage. It was just a really interesting look at how the financial interest of hospitals is affecting their decisions to take patients. And the article kind of talks about this, I guess, loophole, you know, there's a federal law that does require hospitals to accept patients from hospitals that have fewer resources. But there's like a loophole here where that these hospitals have sort of used to to deny these patients. And these patients were coming from much smaller hospitals in more rural county in Southern California. So it's just a really interesting look at, I think, problems that probably existed before COVID, but are now being kind of illustrated by, you know, the challenges hospitals are seeing in, in COVID patients.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of that. Margo.
2: I wanted to uh, talk about a story in The Hill from Peter Sullivan. Uh, says, Republicans, the Supreme Court won't toss Obamacare, which I think is just really a reminder of how strange the politics around the Affordable Care Act have become. So what Peter points out is that in the hearings around the confirmation of Amy Comey Barrett, there were a lot of attacks from Democrats, concerns that she might be a vote to overturn the Affordable Care Act. And so there was a big focus on what the effects of that would be. And Peter just found all these quotes from different Republican senators whose message was basically like, oh, she would never do that. You know, what a crazy thing that would never happen. The Supreme Court is not going to overturn Obamacare. Um, Senator McConnell, the majority leader, said that, you know, the court will never overturn uh, Obamacare. Several senators uh, quoted in this story sort of pointed out that you know she's she's a kind woman with many children. She would never do this. And I just you know the irony is very rich, obviously, because these same senators are people who have been elected on campaigns to repeal Obamacare themselves over many years, who attempted to do so in the legislative process. And while these senators are not directly involved in the Supreme Court case itself. This is a court case that was brought by Republican politicians who want to overturn Obamacare. It is joined by the Trump White House, who is closely aligned with many of these senators. And so it's just very through the looking glass to see them acting as though the repeal of Obamacare is
0: anathema. But it's so 2020. All right. I actually have two stories this week. The first is from Cooks Illustrated, of all places, and it's called The Best Reusable Face Masks. And the second from the Washington Post is called Consumer Masks Could Soon Come With Labels Saying How Well They Work. And both stories illustrate something that has bothered me since health officials first told the general public that we should start covering our faces. At the moment, as a consumer, you have absolutely zero clue how well those masks protect others from your droplets and you from theirs. Cooks Illustrated did sort of the consumer reports thing and cooked up, pun intended, some of their own, albeit rudimentary test, ranking masks according to how well they fit, how well they filter, and how easy they are to adjust, all of which are important to whether or not a mask works. The Post story goes inside what it turns into a giant internecine war about how to best inform consumers about how well masks work relative to each other. It turns out that no federal agency, actually regulates consumer-grade masks. Various agencies regulate respirators for industrial and agricultural and medical workers, but this falls into a regulatory gray zone. Uh, There's a huge group that's working on standards, but surprise, they're having trouble agreeing. So for now, it appears that the best advice is to find something that fits and is comfortable so you'll wear it and has at least two layers and stay tuned for better advice. Uh, So that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, we'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our ace producer Francis Ying, who makes us sound okay even when we are all in different places. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at What the Health, all one word, at kff.org, or you can tweet me. I'm at jrovner Paige, pw underscore Cunningham, Alice at alice olson, Margot at Sanger zangercats. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime. Be healthy.